Hi, I'm Erin Bagwell. And I'm Diana Matthews. Welcome to Feminist Wednesday's Beaver Talk, the podcast where we give Hollywood unsolicited advice about feminism. In our world, Oprah buys Fox News. Cher sings Mamma Mia to me in my dreams. And Ellen Pompeo is my new financial coach. Join us as we deep dive into all the things that fire us up about film and television, the glorious, the misogynistic, and the groundbreaking. This is Beaver Beaver Talk. Hello, hello! Good morning, girls. Good morning. We have a really special guest in the Beaver Dam, <laughs> Emily. <laughs> I'm totally blanking here. Mwakitawa. That's it. Yeah, I did it. Mm-hmm, you totally okay, did sorry, it. I got a little nervous there. Nailed that was a it. big moment. I know. I took a really dramatic pause. I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Emily, how are you? I'm well. I'm doing great. Yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. Mm-hmm. Diana and I have been, you know, we love talking about Hollywood and media. And one of the things that we are constantly musing on is like the actor's experience and just kind of like the journey and the process. And so we're so excited to have you and just chat a little bit with you about your process. Um, before we kind of get into um, your story and things like that, I'd love to know what media like has there been like a film or a show or like maybe that shaped your upbringing of of growing up or really influenced you well i grew up in mombasa kenya so east africa so there was a definitely a different kind of media uh growing up in in africa than than i experienced when i finally came here to uh, new orleans in 96 but uh, I do remember in 96 when I arrived, uh, one of my friends who was local, she was like, there's this show called Power Rangers. <laughs> you really need to watch it. And, you know, for me, it was the first time I saw, you know, I don't know, maybe I just didn't have exposure or my parents didn't allow me to in Africa, but it was it was really spectacular as far as, you know, that girl superheroes and... Um, and graphics and you know it, it was it was really something special so i got definitely into the cartoon network uh and and power rangers all of that growing up and that opened my eyes to what uh imagination could look like on on film and television so um but even up until that point uh, and even further i didn't know that i could that it was a profession that mm. you could be uh, a producer, that you could be an actor, that that was like something that people did. It, it never clicked for me actually until I was like almost 17 years old um, later on in life. And then uh, someone told me about musicals and I'm like, wait, you can act and sing and dance at the same time. I don't, what is this? What is this <laughs> wizardry? Um, and within like a year, I was like, all right, I'm going to acting school, I guess. So, um, so really it was a journey of even realizing that this was something possible when I was a kid. That's so cool. How old were you when you got here? I was six. Wow. Yeah, just about to be seven. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Power Rangers would have been everything. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Who was Amazing. your favorite ranger? The pink one. Yeah. The pink one was Kimberly. my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Kimberly, was that your Kimberly. favorite too? Um, I like Tanya. Yeah. Yeah. She's liked, the yellow ranger. Yeah, she's the yellow. Was it kind mm-hmm. of racist that they gender identify? Wasn't the black ranger black mm-hmm. and the yellow ranger Asian? Am I lying oh, about no, this? No, no, I don't know. I don't think the black ranger was black. 
I'm trying to think. The Yellow Ranger was Asian. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but I think oh, that was later. Goodness. I don't think it... That, yeah. I could be wrong. I don't know my Power Rangers history very well. Because there was honest. only two girls, right? Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we know. It was hmm. cool. We'll have to things, do a deep dive. To, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I love... And they tried to remake it, so, or they did remake it, and I haven't watched a new one because it's just... I can't. You <laughs> yeah. Know? I feel yeah. like that's a case closed. It's like, gotta live in your, like, six-year-old brain. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what about when you were a teenager? So as a teen, um, I really dived into musicals a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went through, you know, intense periods of obsession with all of the classics. So uh, classics as far as like for our generation. So I, the first was uh, Rent and then it was Wicked. We were just talking about Rent. I was having uh, Seasons of Love stuck in my head this morning. Diana's yeah. like, you're going to have a great day. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, it's the per- it's the it's a great anthem for, for that. That's awesome. Yeah. So so I really went pretty hardcore with that, and then I kind of backtracked. I did Phantom and Chicago, and then they were doing movie musicals at the time. So um, so I really got into that, and then yeah, joined acting school, and you know I was so green. I was so new because I just realized that I could do this and. And I don't, you know, I'd loved music since I was a kid. So I'd always been vocalizing and singing, things like that. It wasn't until, and I'd been taking voice lessons. So as far as building my confidence and my talent, I knew that I had that, but I didn't know that I had a storytelling ability, which mm-hmm. is its own skill. And, um, and it wasn't until I got into college, actually, that my coaches were like, oh, you have something. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I was able to give myself permission by, by being um, reflected through people in the industry that you have something. Mm-hmm. So, um, so musicals was, was really an important thing for me uh, as far as also confidence as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old in the world, as an immigrant, as a black woman, um, I built a lot of confidence those early days in because musicals are, are really about full expression and you're, when your character can't say it anymore, they sing it. When they can't sing it anymore, they dance it. <laughs> and so it's like you're moving into different degrees of expression and you have to be fully committed. And so it allowed me to kind of, it came in at a time when I was really trying to find myself as well. Um, so that the, my teenage years were really shaped by the craft. Amazing. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. How do you know that you're like you can be an actor? That's a good question. I think everybody already is in some degree because we all have different. We're uh, all born naked and the rest is drag, <laughs> as they say. I knew RuPaul was going to come into this conversation at some point. And drag I just too, felt right? it. Felt it. <laughs> that is awesome. I love that. Um, well, as far as like there's different aspects of every person within themselves and we all have roles that we play. We have faces that we have for mom and dad than we do for and hopefully, you know, the point of it all is to integrate. But I think we all have the capacity to to be an actor because acting is is storytelling. It's truth telling. Um, and also because it's such like a hard thing to nail down, um, it's just, it's it's expressiveness is really what it is uh, at the core of it. So yeah, I think anybody can. Now, as far as being a professional actor, um, <clears throat> now we're getting into like marketing 
and mm. the business and type, knowing your type, knowing people, um, taking care of your instruments so that you're able to do it long term. Um, also, I would say. Is that something you think a lot about the business side of things? Because it's so interesting that you kind of were like, you know, there is this kind of spiritual artistic aspect and then there's the show business mm -hmm. and it's and the marketing and stuff is how much time do you spend like in both worlds, would you say? Because that's something I, I don't think a lot of people think about. Right. The business side of it. Right. Yeah. And, and I always laugh when people are like, oh, I can be an actor. I'm like, sure, sure. You know, <laughs> yeah, because it's the business side is, I think, the container for it all. I, I think it's really great. Right. Especially in New York, you hear a lot of actors or even artists in general who are very much about the process and very much about the muse. And I think that's all wonderful. But at the end of the day, we are a commerce based society and someone has to keep the lights on someone has to keep you know the crew fed and the equipment and so and i don't um i don't knock that and i think a lot of artists do because it's like about the process and like about their you know like they need their their like stuff to be able to like create that's great but then like we also have to sell something at the end of the day um i wasn't that way as far as with my mindset until I actually left New York and realized that I couldn't sustain myself in New York as an artist without the commerce side, without the show business side, without marketing, really without marketing. Um, and so I ended up working with a great marketing coach for actors, specifically her name is Dallas Travers. She talks a lot about how to create systems around marketing for artists. And that really shifted things for me because... When you say marketing for artists, are you talking about like get social media, like getting Instagram followers or like the way that you share the work that you're doing? Or like, how do you define marketing? Right. So that's a great question. Um, so specifically, some things, some big things I took from her were systems, right? Creating systems to be able to, just like with a traditional business or with an online business, to create leads. So in acting, your leads would be networking with casting directors. And really, you know, this is this is not top secret, but it's huge. it was a huge shift for me. Really, it's marketing with producers because producers mm. are the decision makers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you want to always head towards the decision makers. So creating systems for um, marketing and reaching producers um, and those who are the decision makers of shows, showrunners, things like that. So, um, so I think a big part of marketing for artists is, like I said, systems for networking and then also systems for creating your own audience reach. So even if you're not a writer or even if you don't have a show to pitch, um, every in Hollywood, it's becoming more so that, you know, how many followers do you have? Are you are you going to be able to bring an audience with you and leverage this thing that we have into something that can sell. So yeah, systems around whether it's social media or having a newsletter or what you guys are doing with a podcast, like having some container mm -hmm. to be able to bring people in to understand your personal brand so that whenever you do have something like a film or a book or a show to pitch, there's already a group of people who know, like, and trust you. Yeah. Yeah. Is this something you learned kind of as you were, you know, after you got into musicals and after you kind of decided this was like the role you wanted to take and you wanted to pursue? Is this something that 
you learned kind of organically just by being in the industry or did you have mentors who kind of helped you figure all this out or was it just kind of a sink or swim? You have to, you have to kind of find your way. Honestly, I was pretty intentional about learning these Mm. things. I think if you're not, then you end up being in New York eight, nine years, burnt out, not really having a sense of direction. And I was already there within like three years Yeah. um, because I'm such like an action oriented person. And so I was taking a lot of action on the craft but I wasn't taking a lot of action and getting traction in my personal brand and in networking. Um, Not to the degree that I felt I was really moving the needle forward. I mean, I was doing random projects in the middle of nowhere, which a lot of starting, starting artists in the city do and starving artists is what I I was trying to avoid saying, but yes, that's true. Um, And so it wasn't until uh, I had a break, down. No, I mean, breakthrough. It was a breakthrough. It was a breakthrough. <laughs> it can come at the um, same time sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I ended up having to leave the city that I said, how am I? I remember Elizabeth Gilbert saying in her book, The Big Magic, about telling her gift, you focus on yourself. I will get the bills paid. Mm-hmm. Like there will be a part of me that will make sure that the bills are paid. I need you to still show up for me. And that is essentially the conversation I had with myself. What am I going to be able to do to be able to carry myself in the city on a practical level so that this thing can really have the container to take off? Um, And so I had to get really intentional about it. And it started off a little spiritual, to be honest, by me literally setting an intention. I read a book called The Passion Test. Um, I forget the author, but it was really great because it talks about getting your priorities straight as far as your passions. And then it, it talks, there are some practical steps, but really it's more so about intention setting for yourself, for your life. And my biggest intention was to be location independent. Mm. So I wanted to be able to work, hashtag work from wherever. <laughs> and I felt that that would allow me to let the muse come and go as she pleases. And so I set that intention. And then I started researching hardcore different industries to be able to do that. I looked to Marie Forleo. Um, that's kind of how I became a part of her tribe. Um, and then, like I said, Dallas Travers, who is a really practical marketing coach for artists. Um, and then reading. And, um, and from there, I just took a lot of steps. So yeah, there was definitely some like falling down the stairs and then being like, ta-da, at the end, you know, you don't know how it'll come together until it does. Um, as far as getting, building the, the frame around my life in order to make the muse happy. Amazing. Yeah. There's a phrase that's like building the plane as you fly it. Yeah. And that's oh, like gosh. totally how, um, yeah, how that sounds. It's like, just kind of, you kind of just keep going and put things together and you don't know where it's going till it's there. Right. So that's I like cool. this idea too of being intentional about where the money's coming from because I think a lot of people struggle with and you know I talk to a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs and they kind of have this feeling that it has to be all or nothing. And so the idea of compartmentalizing like I'm going to make money over here and I'm going to work on the craft over here like sometimes that's where we're at and sometimes that's what we have to do. Um can you speak a little bit more about kind of how you came to terms with how you wanted, you know, to like move forward in the world while kind of holding space for your passion? Absolutely. I think, first of all, it's really important to honor rhythm and seasons mm. because trying to do it, Mar- Dallas, who I just mentioned, she says, um, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. Mm-hmm. 
And that really resonated with me because I needed to actually honor the season that I was in. I was in a down season. I was in a winter season. I was in a gray season. And because of that, it was more about focusing on my career, my finances, my goals and intentions to be able to create the life that I wanted and not the craft. So I wasn't singing. I wasn't in acting for about a year, really. Um, and, you know, my coach was like, when are you coming back? What's going on? But that's the season that I was in because I knew that I needed a lot more clarity to be able to get fuel in my tank to go on even further. And thankfully, I'm really glad that I did take that time. I thought it would be like three months and it ended up really being like two years um, of, of creating that. So as far as what I did, and this is something I have a little sister who's 15, she's coming out into the world and she's like, you know, deciding what she wants to be. And, and I've done a lot of homework on industries and entrepreneurship and things like that. And I really want to encourage, I encourage her in this path. So this is always the advice that I give because it's what has worked for me. Um, what I did was because my intention was to be location independent. And then of course people have intentions about passive income and residual income and things like that. I got into the digital world. So I decided firstly to try online publishing because publishing, you can do it from your laptop. So I did that for a little bit of while, a, a little while, which is collaborating with different writers, different authors to create digital packages. So that could be a book, that could be an audiobook, that could be a physical book um, at times, but really digital product pro- products um, to be able to sell on Amazon, on you know Kindle, on Kobo, on um, Nook, all of these things. So that was a lot of work, and it took some time to kind of get going, but it was it was it fulfilled the intention for a while. Then as the universe would have it, I networked with people, people who have been friends with for years and they're all, you know, digital friends that we've never physically met. And uh, they're like robots. And, uh, <laughs> and from there, networking with them, as, as they say, kind of serendipity finds you, um, I decided to get a coach to do e-commerce and go into physical products because With social media marketing being such um, an underpriced, I still think it is pretty underpriced as far as generating leads and generating sales. Um, From my research in the market, I decided to get into physical products and scale and scale and scale. I got coaches. I started reading. I listened to a ton of podcasts. And I was a hermit for a while, honestly, um, because my intention and my desire was so strong to create the container for my muse that um, that I was I focused on that and I built an, an e-commerce store online from my mom's attic, essentially, is what happened. And then I knew uh, that I was getting a little too comfortable with like the easy life in Louisiana. <laughs> and so the muse was like, you really need to go back to New York. So I just did it like the following month. I was like, and I'm back. Uh, and thankfully, because of being system oriented and process oriented and intentional in the way that I wanted my life to look as an artist, it's continued to still be a great balance. Um, The interesting thing that I didn't expect was having to rebuild my confidence on the craft side. Mm -hmm. So now that the craft is now coming forward with me having to um, get back in voice lessons and acting class and on camera and things like that, 
you know, there's a lot of underlying fear that I think I had, I was able to tuck away because I was in such a hustle action oriented mode. But now it's like rebuilding the confidence with the craft side. So I'm in that season and I'm honoring that process as well. Oh my God, that's so speaking to me because I've been working on sales for Dream Girl for like, I don't know, the last year and a half, I would say. And now I'm starting to entertain projects and figure out the next thing. And it's, it definitely is a fear of like, oh, like I haven't been in this space in a long time and I haven't been like the creator in a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's also like the heaviness of having to pick the next thing is like looming very large of like, I this better be like in total alignment with, you know, stepping forward. Um, I'd also love to know kind of, I know you've done like a ton of musicals and things like that. I'd love for our audience to hear kind of about the, the like theater work that you've done and like the shows you've been in. Um, And then I'd love to kind of like talk about the process of those and things like that. Sure. So my first musical that I did um, when I started officially um, in 2008 was this musical called Nonsense. I saw the photos of this. (laughs) Oh, yeah. On your website. And (laughs) Sister Act is one of my favorite movies. So I was like, oh, we got to talk about this one. (laughs) Yes, it was so much fun. It was an absolute blast. Um, Kind of, uh, I have a, there's a, my character had a really... I archive shows, so I have to like really go into like the recesses of my subconscious to remember. What does some archive roles. mean? Archive. Do I really tuck it away? I do. I tuck it away. I, t- I put it in its folder and I put it in its f- file cabinet in my mind. And then I, I have to reaccess like the emotions and the character to, to like talk about it. Mm. Um, because it's when you go through like a big repertoire of stuff and you're constantly moving forward with sides and scenes and things it can be really hard to catalog, you know, uh, all of the, all of the work. So it's way back there, but is I do, there a process that comes with that or is it just for me? There is yeah, because I hear. want to like honor that it was a thing and now it's not a thing. So, um, going maybe a little bit into the process, what you're mentioning, um, as far as ending a show and archiving a show, mm-hmm. um, I can start there for me because I, I'm a visual learner. I take a lot of photographs or I'll, I take photographs and I use photographs in order to access something about the character. So um, my favorite musical that I was a part of is a musical called Children of Eden. Um, The first act is the story of Adam and Eve. And the second act is a story of Noah and how there's interlacing themes between these two families. So for her, Eve, I played Eve, I had a lot of photos of, of older women, uh, younger women. Uh, there's a great photo of, um, it's kind of, it reminds me of the goddess in Moana, like uh, the, of the shape of a, of a woman in a mountain. Um, so I had a really great photo with that. And, um, and I used a lot of music, too, to kind of help me access the, the heroine's journey, if you mm. will, that she was going on. So when that time was over, I saved the photographs. I kind of take photos of everything of my, of my dressing room, um, cast, things like that. And then I put it all in a photo album. And that's kind of how I archive it. And I do kind of have a moment where I, because I journal too as the character. This is another tool. Um, I finish that journal, like officially with the last entry, with a thank you, you know, hugs and kisses to the muse to be able to kind of archive it in my mind. So I think that's how I'm able to. Wow. release it. Yeah. It, that's what I feel I need to do to like respect 
actors, some actors are just like take their makeup off, they go home. But um, it's just, it's really deep work sometimes that, and you do feel that, I don't want to say the spirits come <laughs> over you, but just that there is an influence of energy that goes into performances that you want to be respectful of mm-hmm. when it's when it's no longer required. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so cool. What's been your uh like most challenging or most rewarding or or favorite in some way role that you've that you've learned the most from? I did a play called Metamorphosis. Um really really wonderful play that talks about I think six or seven different myths, Greek myths. So there's King Midas in there. Um, there's Psyche. There, there's tons of different myths. And the show is all centered around a pool. Well, the way that we, the production that we did, it was around a pool. I think it's typically done that way. And um, so the challenging thing was juggling multiple roles in one show um, because it's a whole different beast. It's not, there's, there's many arcs now that you have to consider there's different physicality you have to consider. There's different tempos of each of the characters. Um, I know you have to do all of that in relation to the material and in relation to these other actors that you're doing and in relation to the elements because now you're in a pool and there's planks and you have to, you know, and there's lights. And so it's it, it was a lot of um, juggling and, you know, the, the, the woman in the back of my head, like pulling levers and pushing buttons to kind of keep the production of it going and then also the storytelling of it but it's a wonderful play I'm madly in love with like mythology and you know ancient storytelling and um and so it was like really gratifying to be a part of something where I could tell multiple stories and it be done in such like a thoughtful way have you seen Orphan Black I haven't. Everyone keeps telling me about it, though. Well, just the what you mentioned about having to be and play different characters. She plays mm-hmm. seven different people on the show, and sometimes with scenes by herself. And it's pretty, like, outstanding. Like, technically, wow. I can't imagine. Because she does do different physical quirks for each person. And, you know, sometimes she has to shoot a bunch of them in a day. It seems like a lot, wow. of, a lot of things to do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot, but it's actually really fun. It's, it's playing dress up, you know, the way that we did as, as kids. And so the challenge of it is really, it's like tasting a bunch of different foods all in one sitting. It it can be really fun and thrilling, but also because especially I'm sure with her, there's a professional element to it. It's like, but you do have to hit your mark. You Mm -hmm. do have to deliver, you know, and there's only so much time to do that. So that is, that pressure is always going to be there. Have you ever felt like you've gotten lost in a role before? Yeah, Children of Eden was one of those with Eve. Because um, I kind of came out of it uh, as far, I remember coming off stage and then being off stage, and I don't remember what happened before. Um, so, yes, it does happen. It's, But, you know, a lot of sports people understand that that mindset. It's kind of being in the zone. It's being in the flow. It's like, it's no different from an artist painting a canvas. It's a, it's a sense of just being really present with it. So you're not actually analyzing that you're present. You're just present. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's happened before, but not. Um, and, and she was a little hard to shake, too, because, you know, Eve is like the essence of the first woman. And, and so I had to, like, really go into that as far as my identity. And so it was hard to kind of shake off in a way. Um but I, 
I am good at acknowledging that it's a process. So I'm not, um, I haven't ever gotten to a place where it's been dangerous to get lost in a role, which some actors do. Yeah, Diana and I spend a lot of time talking about method acting (laughs) and the way that men can sometimes abuse it and abuse the power of um, behaving badly in certain instances. And and I think we give men the space to do those things, but women aren't seen in like the same light and are not given as much permission to do it. Do you have any thoughts about method acting or? That's a great point. Um... I actually have met a lot of women who method act. Um, I haven't seen men be abusive, but I do want to speak to what you mentioned about permission, right? Because that is it. That is it. Um, messy, a messy woman is treated very differently than I think a messy man. I mean, they're, they're, they're labeled differently. Dan and I even. are nodding. Yeah, yes. We're just nodding our heads right <laughs> off of our bodies. Yes. Especially when it comes to emotions and not just emotions, but also desires. Um, that's a huge theme that I've been in for like six, seven months. Is like, what is my desire? Because when you actually verbalize some things, it can get really uncomfortable for others. As a woman to verbalize like where you're at or what you're about or what you want in the world, um, it can get really messy. And so it is messy by virtue of just being desire. It's going to be... Um, unconventional at times. So um, yes, I do think that um, that those are approached differently or they're labeled differently in the world just because you are female um, and you choose to identify in that way. But, but, I, but I honestly think that the more we support each other in the sisterhood and the tribe of of being messy and mm-hmm. not judging each other when it is messy, right? Because emotions are so fascinating. Um, there's someone who can deal with grief in a messy way and someone who deals gr- with grief in a, in a different way, but they're both still have some kind of messiness to them and not judging, well, this person had, you know, it has to be in this way or it's, or it's, I'm uncomfortable because you grieve in that way. And by honoring and acknowledging and validating everybody's way of expressing their emotion, whether it's through method acting or through a real life moment, then the world, I think, will reflect that more, that it's okay to be whatever version of messy that you need to be, mm-hmm. you know? For sure. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, I think, idea because we, for so much of, like, the way that we're gendered, women are taught to, like, take care of the family. And so when I think of method and when, you know, Reese Witherspoon has talked about, like, not being able to, to take time away to be able to process or step into a role um, whereas, you know, I'm thinking about the men in that one movie who like lived, you know, in the woods for six months and just, uh, there's a lot of permission and space given for men to kind of step into those roles. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just harder for us because the gender norms and the way the family dynamic set up, women are not given that same permission. So that's something Absolutely. we talk about on the show a lot. Yeah. I also think we don't talk about, we don't talk about the female method actors, actors, and we don't talk about the women who are doing it and like the, like what that looks like. And then the way that could grant so much permission to not only actresses, but just like fans of the industry or anything like that. I think it could really kind of change the way we see method acting and maybe make some of the behavior that you and I have talked about, like actually unacceptable. And this is what it actually looks like when it's productive for a production. Mm -hmm. I think that could be really cool. 
Emily, I know we've also talked about you're really kind of excited about producing now Mm -hmm. and like kind of stepping into like sharing your story. And I'm wondering, I'm one, one of the things that scares me about acting just in general, (laughs) Mm it's like a profession (laughs) is I'm a real control freak. And like, I want to, I want to be able to say, know the words that are coming out of my mouth are authentic or like, I feel like that's why I could never step into that space. I think what you do is like so hard, but I also think like, there's so much, you're you're having to surrender so much and that would terrify me. I don't think as a person I could do that. Maybe that's something I need to work through. I think you need to take some acting classes. Yeah, maybe I do. (laughs) Um, But I can't imagine being on a set or being in a production and maybe not being in love with the character and not thinking a woman would say that or do that or act that way. Have you ever been in a situation where you were like, this doesn't feel in alignment with like my values as a person or as a woman of color? That's a great question. Um, The answer is yes, but uh, I think more so I have, when I approach a script, I think because I, came from another country and so this my sense of belonging is very different from I think a traditional maybe someone who was raised here um another black actress so I've always felt like a gypsy Hmm. and so it's hard for me to be like yeah I'm, I'm part of the club and now I don't feel part of the club I've always felt not part of the club so when I approach a role I haven't approached it with the identity of black girl or African girl, because none of those things made me really feel a sense of belonging anyways. What makes me feel belonging is access and access to my instrument. So my soul, right? My soul essence is really what I feel, where I feel the most belonging. So when I approach a script, what make what can make me uncomfortable and feel different isn't so much that well a black girl wouldn't say that or a wooden, woman wouldn't say that it's just it's more so oh well I don't know if I if I'm comfortable with my anger right mm-hmm. and this and anger is required of me um, or I don't know if I'm if I'm comfortable with accessing my sexy side today because that sensuality is required of me. Um, and so I approach it from that. And, and that is the challenge of it all more so than, yeah, sometimes you do get scripts and scenes that it's really the writing is, is horrible. And so what can I do with this? But that is the challenge is like bringing, bringing your own thing to it. Um, and, and trusting that whatever you do bring, as long as it's truthful and authentic and resonates at some pitch with your soul that it whatever needs to come through will come through. I love what you said about surrender because for me acting is it is a safe container for the involuntary. I think everybody wants to feel safe enough to let go. Mm. And when the conditions are right within with the right director and the right actors and the room feels safe enough to be able to let go, it's you're like happy to let go because it's you're getting a chance to actually be raw and be authentic and to be seen, which is something that everybody that's a human need. Um, so yeah, the ability to surrender is, you, I have to have a conversation with myself and with my inner self about like, come out and play, it's safe, <laughs> it's safe, the water's nice, you know, um, to, come, to come in and be able to do it because safety 
is very, very, very important as an artist. Yeah, most to be able to surrender. Yeah. Do you, when you choose a role, do you have to see a piece of yourself in it, or do you, in order to take the role and feel like you can bring something to it, or do you like to play people who are not like you in any way and kind of force you to be a totally different version? I think when I was a green actor, I would say I would have to see myself in it in order to do it because there's that level of comfort. But now, if I immediately gravitate to something, I'm a lot more, not skeptical, but having done enough, I now realize that what is actually the thing that scares me? So, you know, we were talking about a show recently with a friend of mine, um, the play Eclipsed that Lupita Nyong'o did on Broadway that I saw. And he and I were talking about the different characters. And I said, oh, well, I could see myself as this. And And he said, I think it's very interesting that you didn't even, like, consider seeing yourself as this role. And I was like, okay, so then that's the role I need to do, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't even, it didn't even enter my atmosphere to, to consider her. And, and so he, and he called me out on it, you know? So I think um, the challenge, the beauty of it, the messiness of it is to say, where am I in this more so than, oh, I'm going to do something because I already see myself in this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think as, and as I'm learning more of myself and, and what I have access to, I'm more interested in the roles that I don't want at first glance. Because I think there's, there's something that my subconscious is trying to not let me see, and then I need to see it. <laughs> you know? Doing the hard yeah. stuff. Yeah. Such right. an onioning, for sure. I also love what you said about like creating the safe space to be able to create. Um, because that's something that on the dream girl set, we were like very thoughtful about is wanting to have the women feel like they could really open up and share their stories. And we wanted to make them feel seen. And I always think about working with actors, like how do you, the culture is so important to like making people feel comfortable to be able to, like you said, go into those, you know, depths and spaces. Have you ever been though in a situation where you didn't feel safe? Like what happens then? Do you just have to kind of override and like, do your, like what, I mean, right, what do you do? Right. Cause I'm sure not every, you know, place yeah. is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's can be scary out here. I think a big part of making the room feel safe is the director, because this is a team in, yes, it is about you and your relationship to your instrument. So if you already feel unsafe within yourself, it's going to be really hard to be an authentic actor. Really hard. So you have to feel safe within yourself and with with you and with the muse as well. But I, but I think when it comes to like actually playing out on the field, it is a bit of a team sport. And so the director is very, very important in helping the actors to feel safe in the room. And as a as someone who's directed and as a producer too, it's really important that I make a conscious effort to like what you were saying with what you were and what your intention was with, with dream girl to actually make it that Um, they wouldn't have felt it if you didn't have the intention to create a safe space for them. So I think the director is very important. There've been times when I've been with a director who was so like um, result oriented and I, and I get it. And I, you know, yeah, we do need to get it done. But but honoring the process also makes the room very safe. And uh, because people are going to get there when they get there, when it comes to emotion. 
And so I've been with some directors who are so result oriented that they rush you uh, and that makes you feel unsafe. Um, you just have to have practical conversations with the higher ups maybe about it um, and, and with fellow actors in a way that's not a coup, obviously. Oh, well, the, you, what's the director <laughs> doing to you? What's he doing to me? Have you ever me? hated a director? You know? No, I don't. I don't. No, I don't hate. No, I don't hate. And also, I know, having been on the other side of the table, they're probably dealing with somebody breathing down their neck about ticket sales or their own insecurities or they're trying to get an agent and an agent's coming. So, no, I I know it's taking it on. Not at all. That's great. I have a lot more anger issues, I think. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've been there. I've been on the other side, and I know it's a really hard. It's a different beast to be a director. It's really really difficult because you're having to now juggle this creative thing, and then you also have to do the sales. Mm-hmm. So it can be, and and maybe you're not doing the sales, but you have to, and then you're thinking about the next project because you're constant. You're a personal brand as well as a director. Will these actors want to work with me again if I call them in for something? How you work with them. Um, and then, you know, you, you're in relationship to the producer and you're in relationship to the crew, which is a whole nother, like managing a family. And, you know, so I get it that it's really difficult and no, there's no reason to, we're all, we're all trying to hopefully create something beautiful and lasting. So I just trust that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the hardest thing about directing is just the decision fatigue of just (laughs) constantly, having to answer thousands and thousands of questions in a day while trying to remain and be really present with who the talent is. I think for me, that was the hardest part of was managing the crew, making sure technically everything was running on one side. And then on this other side, like I need to be a hundred percent devoted to whoever I'm bringing on set. Um, that was really tricky. Yeah. And be 20 steps ahead of like, what's, what's could happen. What's going to happen. What happens tomorrow? Or what, what does happen that happen? Week, what's going on? You know, cause a lot of things did, you know, stuff would short circuit or things wouldn't work. And then it was like, okay, you're just pro- constantly problem solving. <laughs> yeah. Which is quite exhausting. Right, right. So tell us about some of the stuff that you've produced or that you're working on. Like, what are you like really excited about right now? Um, a great friend of mine, Ryan McCurdy, who's a wonderful performer in the city, um, he was a part of the play Lingerie Play. Did you guys hear? Oh, no, I don't know no. this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How did fabulous. Lingerie Play not? Oh, my goodness. It's this fantastic woman, one-woman show um, by a performer named Diana O. She started it with different installations throughout the city, basically standing on her soapbox that she made that, has, that says soapbox on it, in her lingerie, in Times Square, different places throughout the city. Um, you know, I am not my body, I think she would have sometimes, or she would just muse about um, different things on her mind. She's a wonderful, um, like, advocate for letting your freak flag fly. And she did this wonderful, um, rent. like, it all kind of came together into this one-woman show, the story of her life. It's it's a music, there's music, it's a musical, there's, she's like this goddess, shaman. I mean, it's, it's the most incredible show that I saw last year um, in the village and Ryan was a part of it. And he decided to, to bring a more thoughtful process to play readings, to, to networking um, and, and uh, I guess matchmaking industry people with playwrights, with directors. Um, He's from Georgia. I'm from Louisiana. He named it Front Porch Readings because there's no front porches in New York. 
And that's what I'm an associate producer with him. So um, our first play is called Rust on Bone. It's by a fantastic playwright named Bianca Sams. Um, it's being directed by Jalen Levinson, and it's premiering on Monday, Monday night. Cool. And um, and so we want to do on once a month and um, and introduce industry people, um, which I was very thrilled and terrified and excited when we put the press release out. All of the calls we got and like we're definitely over capacity, but we'll try to make it work. And some big names are coming, and I'm like, I don't know if my director wants to know that, but okay, you know, because <laughs> sometimes that you don't want to know. Um, and so producing has been amazing to me. Um, having produced musicals when I was in college, being in the city, it's such a wonderful process because people are so interested. Um, whereas in the South, you kind of have to tell them why they should be interested. But in New York, everybody comes, everybody's on the same team. It's a small town as far as people who are working and people who are professional and are really, um, at the top of their game. And, uh, so yeah, I'm producing, these play readings, um, 12 in a year, and uh, I'm really excited. For Are you going to act in readings. any of them, you think, or just stick to producing? I mean, it's a lot of work to, to do yeah. both, so. Um, it's a good question. I actually don't – I like to be either on the other side of the table or not. Gotcha. Um, I think that if I really fell in love with a play and we were able to find a producer who wanted to take it somewhere, then I would say, okay, this is me auditioning as an actor now, just so you know. Mm -hmm. um, even though we brought it to you as a producer, but I, I would separate those pretty distinctly because I think they're two completely different processes. Um, so no, nothing yet, but you never know. I, but matchmaking is really fun, you know? So it's like matchmaking. Do I want to matchmake or do I want to like be in there dating? It's like, um, I really enjoy <laughs> matchmaking right now and, yeah. and, and playing that role. So yeah. So we'll see as it, because on the other side, I'm, rebuilding my confidence. I'm getting, I'm back in, you know, acting and all that stuff. And so that to me, honoring that season of just like building my instrument back up and my voice, um, that's enough for me to be in the game as an actor that producing, I mean, that hat, it's, it's all that's required right now. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Do you have anyone that you look to as you're kind of, you talk about like you're in a period right now of kind of getting your confidence back with your artistry. Do you look to anyone or does anyone inspire you in the industry that you like like you watch it, you watch their movie and you suddenly feel like, oh, I can, I remember why I do this for a living and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, your faves? <laughs> yeah, I go through different phases with, with actors and actresses. As far as like career envy, one person right now who I think is really uh, like great is Frances McDormand. Yes. Of course, because if you saw her SAG speech, she's like, thank you guys for letting me like come back and then like disappear for a while. And I really, really love actors who do that. Like Kate Blanchett is another one. She's like the career that I would want because she is a theater goddess. I mean, she is she does theater. Yeah. And the best actors started in theater, I think. And um, and yet she'll go. She's an you know she was an artistic director for a while, or she helped uh, her husband with their theater company in Australia. And then she like comes and does a film and then wins an Oscar. And then she's like, bye for like two years. Mm -hmm. And she's a mom and that's very important to her. Um, Julia Roberts is another one. She'll like come in, do something and like blow your socks off. And then like she's gone for a while. So I love that. I like actors who do their own thing. They'll come on Broadway and then you won't hear from them. And they're always working. They're always doing stuff. Um, so yeah, a lot of career envy for, for actresses who stay 
only with projects that they want and they're perfectly okay with being home with the blinds closed other when when they're not you know in my mind that's what I would be I'd be home yeah (laughs) Frances McDormand totally seems like one of those she's just an artist like she's not there she's an actor's actor yeah Yeah. she's not there for like the gowns and the glitz and the glamour and the red carpets she's like I do the work and it's cool that you guys keep letting me do the work (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and also it's nice to take a break take a rest, rejuvenate. I'd imagine like after being so in a role and so invested and so pouring yourself into, like you probably need to take time to process and go through a season, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all part or start of- a family or all the, all the different things that you like living a life, having yeah. a full life, you know, it's traveling. And um, I, someone was telling me recently, Idris Elba, like, races race cars. I don't know if you guys know this. He's, oh. like, a, like, a race car. Got, like, it's, like, a serious Fun. hobby for him. Yeah. Like, he's really good. And what? Like, what? You, you're in Marvel movies, and you're doing, you know, all these incredible roles, and he's, like, a hobbyist. Like, I just love that, that you have this whole other, this whole other life, you know? Um, friends of mine always see Mark Ruffalo on the Q train, because he lives in Queens, so, like... He and you'll see on his Instagram, like he takes characters on the Q train, you know, and like what, you know, (laughs) like that you're just like taking your daughter to school and you're in that season, you know, where we're not seeing you in anything. And then you come and do a Marvel film, a huge, huge blockbuster. And then you go home to Queens like that is the life. (laughs) There's a freedom to that. That really is truly beautiful when these people I mean, I feel like actors give so much and there's they're really I mean the things that stay with you are like she was a screen idol to me or like I remember seeing Mm -hmm. that movie and she was such an icon for me and like they give so much so that to see the freedom of these people who really have their life and they have their craft it's like it's really inspiring it's very cool yeah what shows and like are you binge watching anything are you like really like are you into like watching a lot of media or where are you at with that or so I've been on a media purge, as a lot of people have been. <laughs> um, I do my like 15 minutes and then I'm like, I'm out. I'm out when it comes to media. Um, I have a lot of shows on my list right now. Um, the first being This Is Us. Um, Diana really likes This Is Us. Yeah. I, I don't like it. I like love to hate it. <laughs> ah. But then I'm like... And then I was like, I should not be hate watching this because that's a waste of time. So I needed to find like the things. But you're still watching it. That's confusing to me. I gave myself an ultimatum of like, you either have to find something you like about this and watch it Mm -hmm. or you have to stop watching it. Although I watched mm. a show last night called Airport Animals. (laughs) What? (laughs) Which I kind of. This is not even surprising. Which I kind of hate watched because I was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Yeah. And only in the UK would they like do a whole show. 30 minutes Mm. about Heathrow Airport and like the animal section and like the exotic animals that come in and out of the airport. Oh, wow. That's terrifying. It's not. Okay. It's really not. It's like you're watching this guy drive around, pick up cats and dogs out of airports. And it's like, it's a pretty slow day. We only have four (laughs) cats today. And it's like, why are we, who cares? Why are we watching this guy's life? Mm. I kind of love that. Bizarre. If it was exotic animals, like, like super, then that would be like, like they have seven cheetahs that they day, did have and a they bunch have an of elephant. Yeah. That would be, I mean, yeah. they were insane. into like the smuggling 
side of things. Well, they did. I mean, oh, gotcha. there yeah. were some chameleons going to China. They weren't big enough, Uh-oh. so they didn't move them along. Those chameleons are not going to China. But it was, <laughs> it's a questionable show. And I was watching sure. it and I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Why am I here? <laughs> I think this is rock bottom. <laughs> My yeah. husband's away. Yeah, it's, that's rock bottom. It really yeah. goes awry. You call me if you feel the need to watch that again. <laughs> You should speak to someone. Reach out to friends before oh it gets God. that far. Yeah, call a friend, girl. There's call no need. Oh, my God. Um, Sorry. Yeah, this is us. Sterling K. Brown really carries that yes. entire show for me. He's a theater person, and, and everybody's telling me about him and his performance, so I'm excited to see that. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, wait, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath for some other shows. First of all, I'm so excited to see the new season of House of Cards when it's ready because I've been rooting for Claire. I love a good villain. Amen. And Robin. I mean, just she's another actress where it's like, okay, I need to just give up. Uh, (laughs) She's so amazing. And so and I want to see what they'll do with that. Um, And then also and and I'll just say it. I'm really excited to see Black Panther. Yes, we were talking. We were just talking about it. It yeah. has everything for everybody. The nerds. I mean, they have the highest pre-sale. Yes, record for Marvel. A look for at a Marvel black movie. People. Yes, yes. We're getting the church bus, your wife, your, your <laughs> mother, your kids. We go into the movies. Everybody's so, going. Of course, in it, so my mom is going to see it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's a, the older demo. Like, well, we're gone. We're all excited about yeah, it. Yeah, we're so excited. Magic Johnson Theater. 125th Street is going to be so lit. I can't even imagine I'm so how excited. incredible that's going to be. What, a, what an entry. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that film. And um, yeah, and this, I want to see This Is Us. And uh, let me think. And then I have just my classic go-tos that I always do. Um, I'm kind of on a um, comedian streak right now. Like I know Dave Chappelle's just came out. Um, because a lot of them are old, like they're, they're truth tellers. They're kind of your modern yeah. day oracles for some of the stuff that we're going through. So, um, so I really love watching comedians too right now. And it's also just good for the times we're in. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We got to laugh. We definitely yeah. do. <laughs> um, I would love to know kind of if you have any advice for like young listeners or maybe even older listeners who might be interested in like breaking into the industry or might be curious about acting like where do you think somebody should start or do you have any advice for somebody about kind of what it's like to be in the industry? Sure, I, I think there's things that are in your control and there's things that are not in your control when it comes to starting off. What's in your control that I would say right away is to read a play a week. Hmm. Read a screenplay a week. Um, getting Developing your taste buds are really important. I think even if you started as a chef, it's like, well, eat different foods, right? Um, so reading, and that's something that's super within your control. Um, sure, you can watch a film a week or watch a film a day, but I actually think reading it and then watching it, seeing the different interpretations is really, really important to develop your taste. Um, and then from there, I would say um, team, your team, as far as your coaches. So getting into a really great scene study class. Um, I st- study with Harry O'Reilly at the Actors Alliance in Midtown. He's wonderful. He's a working actor in the business. So, you know, he's like, I just came from an audition and this is what happened. So that's wonderful to hear from someone who is t- is coaching you as well. Um, so getting a really great team as far as your vocal coach or your acting coach getting into a scene study so that you're able to be up on your feet, you're able to try different things, and you're able to feel safe enough to to try um, all of the things that you're reading and learning about. Um, another class I would really recommend um, 
And actually, it could be class, but you could also kind of going along with what I was saying about watching comedians, um, watching like really great solo performers and solo performances is good homework, too. And if you want to be even more advanced, um, jumping into an improv class. Mm. And I would I would say that for whether you want to act professionally or not. It's so, so, so important. Next to voice lessons, improv has changed my life as far as my instrument. Because, you know, letting go of inhibitions, talking about being able to surrender, getting out of your head, being in the present moment, being unfiltered. It's just a good habit to develop um, so you can access it if you need to. And improv class is where there's a container for you to do that, to jump in and literally be an ogre to a little kid to, you know, an executive all within like an hour, you know, you get to play, you get to play. So I think playing and doing an improv class, reading a play or a screenplay or watching films a week and then getting a good, good coach is you're off to the races. And and those three things will never stop. Like you don't stop doing those things um, even when you make it. So might as well start there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have one final question for you before we wrap up here. Um, I think one of the hardest things about being an actor and one of the things that I admire so much is the resilience that you have to have to, you know, kind of like you said, be able to go into a room over and over again and know your type, know how to portray yourself, know how to share your own story. But, you know, a lot of it is timing. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is like you're not in the right room at the right time or you haven't met that right person yet. I don't know of any other industry where you can work in it for decades and like not hit the right mark just because of timing and because of the way things are aligning. Do you have any advice for people on the resilience it takes and kind of what to do? Like, do you have any tips or tools on when it's starting to feel heavy or like you're getting exhausted by the process? That is the work. That is the work. Um, That's the conversation I have to have with myself every, every month, every week about, um, when is it healthy to continue on the race or when is it that you have a leg cramp and you probably should sit down and, (laughs) you know, it's like running a marathon. So um, negotiating that with yourself is, I think, different for every person. For me, what I've come to realize is firstly the people I surround myself with. Because if I'm surrounded with people who are very much still running, very much still in the game, they have their gear, they have the right attitude, something about siphoning a little bit of that helps me to find the next day and to find Mm -hmm. the next moment. So even if it's just that, being surrounded by people who are still in it, so that when I am in the down, I still feel that I'm either being carried or I'm being inspired to the next checkpoint. Um, So I would would really... um, encourage people who are in the down to take inventory of who you've surrounded yourself with, who you're listening to, because when you are committed, or at least for the moment, you're feeling like, I want to be in the industry, I want to be an artist for a while, um, the kind of conversations that you have with yourself are really, really, really important to be able to when you, when you are in the up to be able to keep, to keep going. And so hearing the way people negotiate with themselves in those moments kind of gives you more tools. You know, I could say tons of things, but really when you are surrounded by people who are winning and winners, you get tools by watching how they process. 
Um, and then I would also say, um, as far as taking care of your instrument, self-care. <laughs> so who you surround yourself with and secondly, self-care. And this is very difficult, obviously, <laughs> in New York City and as women, too, because we're the last person on, the li- on our own list. But um, with self-care, it's like, man, it's everything. Because what happens is people are going to meet you at that same level. At the level that you respect, honor, and and consciously take care of yourself, mm-hmm. and honoring your instrument, your emotional body, your physical body, your spiritual state. Like I said, the way you talk to yourself in a conscious way, like literally putting it on the books. Whether it's v, like I do Vedic meditation every day. So like whether it's meditation. Or whether it's, you know, honestly, laughter, comedy, putting that, like, that's why I'm on this comedy streak is because I'm, that's a part of my self-care ritual um, to be able to keep going. Because really, at the end of the day, like, we can't take this stuff too seriously. And recognizing that and acknowledging that keeps the mar- keeps you kind of going throughout the marathon. Um, and then I would say, lastly, as far as resilience, so I said, um, people you surround yourself with, self-care. And then I would also share... Um, Actually, I would say the third is what I just mentioned, which is playfulness and laughter and not taking it too seriously. Um, And you can do that by watching comedians, by playing with your friends in an improv class, by going to see a show just because. And um, whether it's, you know, um, the opera or airport animals or (laughs) anything, it's like whatever brings you joy, follow your joy. That's my third thing. Follow your joy because it will actually fuel you longer than obligations and thinking that you need to stay in a season that your body's just like, no, I actually just want to really laugh for like three months. And that let that be part of what feeds the muse because it's it's a a long road. Yeah. And it'll be even longer otherwise. For sure. Emily, this has been so wonderful. Great. What an insight into the actor's life. I feel like we're always kind of like projecting and questioning and wondering what goes on. And this has just been the best. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. How can our Bettys find you and follow you and support the work you're doing? Well, you can always find me at Front Porch Readings, our Gmail, uh, gmail gmail.com. And yeah, I'd be happy to help anybody, converse with anybody. And when I start my my ultimate dream, which is my own production company, then from there, um, I'll be able to continue to keep in touch with people. So frontporchreadings at gmail.com. Perfect. Amazing. Thank you so much. Happy Feminist Wednesday, ladies. Happy Feminist Wednesday. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Hey guys, I'm Lissa Mandel. I'm Philip Cassell. And we're here from The The Bitch Bitch Seat, the podcast. It's an interview show where we talk to guests about the horrible and beautiful parts of their youth. We like to think of it as an adult talk show and tell. A grown-up show and tell. There you go. Like that. So for a teaser, here's some magnetic poetry that I wrote on my fridge when I was 12. Hit it, Phil. Dreams of whispered music felt snow white and lathered me in delirious symphonies. The ache within is black and bitter. A thousand frantic shadows scream and chant bitterly. I sleep on a lake of a thousand diamonds. You were 12? Yeah, I was way ahead of my time. Fair enough. Tune in. This has been an Atlantic Transmission production. Hey!